Yeah, so um, definitely keep that Isaiah passage open because we will be looking at a lot of it, whether you have the book or not, or a Bible or whatever. Um, we will definitely be referring back to it. Well, a solar system mobile. Have you ever seen one of these things in action? Mostly like in kids' rooms or like maybe your science teacher's place or something like that. There's these really big planets that are held together by these thin little strings. Sometimes this can be like a perfect metaphor for the worries of life. There you are in the middle. There's these, all these big things that are rotating around you and the only thing they're held together is these thin little strings. And if one of them breaks and the thing falls and it all goes to chaos. For example, one-third of people in the UK are one monthly paycheck away from being homeless. That's one-third of people. That was a story we heard over and over from uh, people at the Longford House, the Longford Center. Uh, they lost their job and their partner left, and all of a sudden they couldn't afford rent, and then they're homeless, and it's really difficult to get out of the poverty cycle when you're in it. Just one month away from that. These are thin strings. We've had a friend who recently had a really serious health issue, like a life-altering health issue that will change their kind of family uh, for the short term, if not forever. Everything was normal one day, get a diagnosis, and the next day, everything has changed. One single diagnosis changes everything. Completely thin strings. And we all have this pressure uh, to be great at everything, to be great at everything all the time. And there's this idea that not only we can do anything, but we should be doing everything. This is like an overdose of positivity. Ironically, instead of leading to like a better life, it leads to a culture of burning out all the time. As one philosopher put it recently, uh, in this kind of culture, where basically you're told you can do everything and you should be doing everything, uh, in this kind of culture, everything takes on an insatiable nonstop quality. Instead of enjoying a mindless sitcom, you binge watch an entire season of shows. I have never done that in my life. Instead of enjoying dinner, you focus on sharing photos of your masterful culinary efforts on social media. I've never done that either. The most banal tasks now become occasions for live streaming and building your personal brand and making sure everybody knows about it. If God isn't God, someone has to be. Now, we all have worries. We all have fears. We all have anxieties. We all have these uh, problems that are beyond our control. And because we look to ourselves, those worries, those fears, those problems, those anxieties, they all get multiplied. Because not only do we have that problem to begin with, uh, whatever the thing might be, now we have the inability to deal with that problem in a, on our own power, and so we're anxious about that, and we're also anxious about this, because we're just not good enough. Now, the people to uh, whom Isaiah is writing here, uh, they need to be relieved of their anxieties and problems as much as we do. In fact, probably even more so for them, because what was happening for them were these outside nations that, uh, this is far beyond any single person's control, these outside nations are going to come in, they're going to take over their land, and they're going to cart them off to these places that they don't know the culture, they don't know the language. Uh, what do they take with them? The only things they can hold in their hands. Basically, they end up refugees in a war that is far beyond their, in, far beyond their control. If they look to themselves, there's nothing but despair there. That's, that's hopeless. They look to themselves. And God knows what we're prone to do. So what he does instead, and especially in this section here, is he gives us this proper view of, of who he is, a proper view of God. And this is what we learn as we seek to apply this ancient text to us today. This is some of the bigger ideas we're going to get to here. We're going to look at through Jesus. We can actually look to something better than ourselves. And this is actually really good news because we don't have it all within ourselves. And God, what God does is he shifts our eyes from ourselves. He shifts it down and allows us to look up to him. And he's going to give us a really big image of himself. And so we'll see why that's actually good news and not just like 
another version of guilt. Three main things we're going to look at here. The first thing, nobody is like God. The second one is we tend to make imposter gods. And the third one is that uh, it's to look to God in all things. Nobody is like God. We make imposter gods. And lastly, we'll end with looking to God in all things. Let's start in this first section here. Nobody is like God. These first verses uh, that we have in here, like verses 12 through um, like 20 or so, uh, they talk about how unique God is. There's nobody like him. Like who, who is like this being? There's nothing like him. Nobody's like him. Here, here's a list of how, on how incomparable God is. First in verse 12, uh, basically, who's measured the waters in the hollow? Who holds the ocean in his hands? Who, who does that? Who, who can weigh mountains as if it's like flour on a kitchen scale? Who, who can do that? Verse 15, all people who exist... A mere drop in the bucket. As the message translates, all people who exist basically are as much to add up to a smudge on a window when compared to God. God's power is beyond any measurement we have. He's powerful beyond anything. The second thing, so he's powerful. He also, he has wisdom. Verses 13 and 14, basically like, who's going to tell God what to do? Who, who could possibly tell God what to do? Who can even understand him in all his ways, let alone tell him what to do? Who taught God right from wrong? And all these questions are posed, of course, in a way of saying, well, like nobody. Like, this, is a, this is what God is like. So he has power. He has wisdom. There's also his worth. Now, verse 16 uh, may not make a lot of sense. You're like, Lebanon, I don't really know much about Lebanon. It says, Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Lebanon was known for these like, really big, strong trees. Like if you wanted the best trees, the choice trees, you get the trees from Lebanon. And what it's saying here is all the trees in the country that produces all the best trees are not enough to light a fire in his honor. It's just not enough. All the animals are not enough for the sacrifices he deserves. He deserves a level of respect that he can't even be recognized. It's off the charts. And verse 17, again, talking to all the people in the world, when they're compared to how great God is, how worthy he is, all the people add up to nothing. In fact, what it says is like less than nothing. This isn't saying that people are worthless, because the whole the Bible talks about how important and great and how worthwhile people really are. Humans are the pinnacle of God's creation. The best thing God has ever created has been humans. And the, best, uh, the combination of all those things, when compared to God, shows that really how, not how horrible we are, but how amazing and massive he is. Like the trees from Lebanon, compared to who God is, you just can't even count us. And then there's his, his rule, verses like 22 and 23, uh, talk about he sits like enthroned above the, this globe, above the circle of the earth. He's in control over everything. He sits as much as God can sit above the earth. Compared to him, we're as small as grasshoppers. He's in control of nature, stretching out the skies, making a place for these small grasshopper-like creatures called humans to live in. Princes, kings, Queens, politicians, generals, they might appear to be in charge, but really, they're nothing. Absolutely nothing. And lastly, in verse 24, uh, we learn about God's authority. Like, who's really in charge here? It's God. He reduces the world leaders to nothing by his mere breath. This little, ah, and that's it. That's all he needs to do. Just breathe out. So God has power. He has wisdom. He has worth. Uh, he has uh, sovereignty, he has rule, he has authority. There are no thin strings in God's world. Nothing is like on the verge of chaos or collapse in God's world. From nature to human nature, nobody, nothing is like God. He is utterly incomparable. 
Now, if that sounds maybe a bit heavy and um, deeply theological, let's switch gears for a moment because I like to talk about cats. <laughs> That's actually a real photo. I can't believe it. Uh, I'm not really a cat person. It's not that I don't like cats. It's not that I hate them. I'm just not really like pro-cat all the time. Me and Christine had a wonderful cat named Oliver who was a very fat, lovable cat. And I think the best thing that was, that was about Oliver was the fact that he was probably more like a dog than a cat, but, so maybe I don't really like cats at all. Now, maybe you're, you're, you are a cat person. That's great. That probably means you're a better human being than me. But here's the thing with cats. They think they're the center of the universe. Maybe they'll let you stroke them, but, you know, because they got to do something nice for you. Maybe not. You know, and if, if you do kind of stroke them, uh, they're going to tell you when it's enough because everything is on a cat's own terms. Anyone who owns cats, I mean, Anne knows. If, if Anne was here, she would tell us all about it. It is in your best interest to care for them, right? You as a human, well, they can kind of care less about you. You're supposed to care for them. But of course, we know this is ridiculous. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's scary. We know this is ridiculous, the way the cats act, because a cat is definitely not a powerful being. The only reason the cat can think of itself in such a way, because a cat's world is small. A cat's brain is small, and only such a small-minded creature could think they're the most powerful thing and most worthy thing in the universe. But of course, isn't that just like us? Isn't that just like us? We think we own the world. We think we run the world. We think we rule it. The list that we gave God, like power and wisdom and authority and all that kind of stuff, we think that of us. We think, oh, that's not really. I mean, of course, we have to say the good Christian thing. Yes, that's about God. But really, if you look at our lives, that's what we think about ourselves. We're powerful. We're the ones with wisdom. We're more, th- more than other people know. People really ought to know about us. There's a reason why social media works so well. It's our way to tell the world about ourselves. We're so great. We need to tell everybody all the time. And when something else comes in and treads upon our authority, like, we don't really like that. Just like a cat. I'll let you love me, but only on my terms, and when I say so. Only a small-brained creature could think of itself so highly. And what Isaiah wants to do in these verses here, and we only kind of touched, like, scrape the surface, is plunge us into the reality that nobody is like God. Nobody is like him. To stop us from being so small-brained and kind of grow a little bit into the knowledge of the reality of of who God is. Uh, quickly, what we find in these verses is even if God is who he says he is, we will try and avoid him as much as we can. And that we do that through making imposter gods. God might be great, or maybe, I don't know, but what we actually spend our time with is making these imposter gods. To flee from the reality of this amazingly huge God, we go our own way and try or make our own. And Isaiah uses this term, idol, which um, in, in this time was like an actual like physical object. But of course, it's a metaphor for all the things that we spend our attention and time for other than God himself. An idol is basically an imposter God. It pretends to be God, but is not. It's a wannabe. And starting in verse 18, we kind of get um, this, uh, this process of how we, we work with, with these imposter gods. And we read about how we as humans will always try and make God in our own image instead of surrendering to the reality that we're made in his. That's a pretty big difference. There's this picture here, whether you have fine materials like gold or whether you have poor materials like wood, nothing can even compare to God. Here, the way that Isaiah puts it out, here's what this process looks like. We spend time making something in an image that we think is best. 
So in a workshop made with human hands, an idea like a design thought up with human minds, we add some sparkling material to it maybe on the outside to make it look extra special or important, or try and find something that is least likely to rot. We hire someone to carve it into something that you think is good, but make sure you give it extra care to how it's made, otherwise it's gonna fall over. It's kind of like making fun of, of the, um, the idol as it's describing it, the end of verse 20, to set up an idol that it will not topple. Basically, if you don't set this thing up right, it's just gonna just fall over. And that's what we spend our time with. That's what we spend our time functionally worshiping. After all this thing is said and done, this thing is created, and now what you get to do is organize your life around this thing. Give yourself to it. You give yourself money. Or you, you give money to it. You give your, yourself to it. You give time to it. You give attention to it. And if you don't care for it, it will break down. Now, maybe you're like, well, I don't have a workshop and uh, I haven't hired a skilled worker to take any special no-rot wood and to create this idol. Like, this is kind of a weird, like, old-school religious worshipy thing. It's certainly not me. But of course, again, this is a spiritual metaphor for how we live. An idol is anything we give our attention to other than God. So what do you give yourself to? Because an idol is an imposter god. It can never actually deliver onto what it promises. It will always lie to us. And if God isn't God, someone or something else has to be. There's maybe two good examples. The thing that makes the best, the, thing that, the things that make the best idols are things that are good to begin with. Family, careers, we're going to talk about those in a second. But anything that's really good in your life is because it can be so good. It can be a partner, it can be whatever, friendships. It's, that is the thing that will be most easily made into an idol for yourself. Because what we do is we take a good thing, we make it the thing, and then we kind of destroy the good thing in the process. Here, there's an example of family as an idol. So family is a good thing, of course. But when it comes to the thing, family is not a good thing. It becomes a burden. We all have images of what we like the family to be, and I don't think I've met anyone who's ever had a family that has ticked all the boxes on the, the life that they would like to have. Nobody really has all the boxes ticked. Whether you come from difficult families like myself or have a wonderful family, the problem is humans are in each one. That's the thing with families. We're all there. And none of us are perfect, and we mess it up. So when that image of what a family ought to be does not come out the way that you want it to, there's anxiety, there's depression, there's loneliness, there's all sorts of things. And you can work all you want, and you will never be able to control it because they're people, and people tend to do things that you don't want them to do all the time. You're going to give, you're going to give, you're going to pour out your blood for this family, you're going to pour it out, and you will never get the kind of return that you seek. Even if, whenever your family is an idol, that's how it's going to work. You'll give and give and give and never get what you want in return. Another example would be work um, as an idol. Men of, many of us, because I would include myself in this, have jobs that you're passionate about. And that's fantastic. That's a great thing. That's, that's a gift. That's a massive gift from God. Very few humans in all of history really get to, to have a job that they get paid to do that they actually enjoy. It's a great thing. But when a good thing becomes the thing, it messes it all up. You can give yourself to your job. You can find your meaning in it. You can pour out hours upon hours. You can wring your hands over it. You can lose sleep over it. But no matter how much blood you pour out, it's going to feel like you never really get what you want from it because it, it can't deliver those things that you really want from it. The tricky thing is that the best idols are those that are already good things. We just put them up a little bit too high. A family, a job. The problem isn't actually with the family or the job. The problem is that you are worth so much. A family, a job is far too small for you to get meaning from. You're worth so much more than a family, so much more than a job. 
They're far too small for you to get the meaning that you want. Friendships, partners, a hobby. They're far too small to get what our souls really crave. So we pour out and we pour out and we keep on doing the same thing. We think the problem is with us. If I need, if I, maybe if I just give myself a little bit more to the job, then I'll get the thing that I want. But we, that never becomes true. That's never become true for anybody. And we wonder why that good thing feels like a weight on our backs. And now we have the extra added benefit of guilt as well. Oh, this, this job is so good. It really is a gift. Oh, why does it feel so horrible? Or this family, I love these people. Oh, I, I should love these people. I don't really love these people right now. It's horrible. We've talked about how we like being the center of the universe, like we're the sun and everything else gets to rotate and revolve around us. We like being important. Of course we like being important. It's kind of like the human thing. So you can serve others and work hard and still act as if you're the center of the universe. You can have a life that looks outwardly religious and outwardly good, but still actually be very, very far from God because you've set your life up for it to be all about you. But the problem with being your own center of the universe means that when things go wrong, you're still the center of the universe, and it's all on you. When those thin strings start like popping or breaking, or just, you know, then like, how are you going to hold those things together? This is how to get cynical. That's how to get burned out. That's how to give in. That's how to give up. Nobody signs up to life being like, I cannot wait till I get to be middle-aged and get to be cynical, burn out, and just kind of can't wait to give up on life. And yet, that's where we all kind of end up. That's all where we drift. That's where we end up when the world is all about us, and we're over here in the corner with our little collection of imposter gods. These imposters are made in our image. They serve our needs, but in the end, what they do is they take from us, and they don't serve our needs. They require us to serve them. They don't give life. They're vampires. They slowly suck life from us. An imposter god requires you to care for it, otherwise it will break down. But God cares for you, especially when you break down. When your family isn't working, when work is destroying you, where are the imposters then? Is your work going to come through for you when you have a difficult time in life? I mean, people there at work can help a little bit, but that, that job is not going to come through for you in the way that you want it to. Only God can. And he's there, even when those things break down. An imposter God will always make you pour out your blood for it. Only Jesus has done the opposite. Only Jesus, lots of things claim to, only Jesus has actually done it. He's poured out his blood for you. Imposter gods will demand that you give yourself to it where Jesus has given himself to you. Now, so far, what Isaiah has given us is really just information. He gives us the image of God, this uh, less great image of ourselves and kind of what we're prone to do. He hasn't really told us to do anything yet. Like, these are just kind of things, that, like information that's out there. Uh, we've learned nobody is like God, and that can be really good news for those of us who rely on him. We've also been told that we make these imposter gods and that never really come through for us. So how can we move from like that in, living that imposter God kind of life to being able to embrace more of that goodness and stuff that we hear in these first few verses? Because we're not really prone to be looking at the real thing. How can we do that? Well, in verse 25, this is where it comes down to, God says, to whom will you compare me? Like in the context of these imposter gods, who are you going to compare me to? Who is my equal? What do we do? Then we read verse 26. We look up. We look to God in all things. Lift your eyes and look up to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, none of them is missing. Look to the heavens. The wonder of creation shows a level of care for like, things that are way less important than we are. God's created these things. He has a name for them even. 
He's not just kind of like impersonally creating. They stay in place because of him. God has set the rules of physics in such a way for these stars to be where they are. Now, if the stars in their place are in their places because of God, that means we can rest that God will be in control of our own places. If the stars can stay in place, surely the little tiff I have with my work colleague or the big difficult thing, the medical diagnosis, whatever the things, surely that's something that God can handle. I mean, if you think of a star, like if you have a close-up of it, I mean, far away, it looks maybe kind of romantic. Close-up to it, it's like this burning hot ball of energy. It's like if you get near it, you burn up and explode or die. You can't even get near it because you'll, you'll die. Maybe sometimes you feel like you're this hot ball of burning energy, this kind of big hot mess in action. But God is more than enough to handle whatever it might be. If he cares for his stars, surely he cares for you. Stars are so low on the totem pole. And if he is enough to handle you, he's enough to handle your circumstances, he's enough to handle whatever life might come at you. The regularity of nature, the fact that we can depend on the sun coming up and going down and normal things happening, is a comfort for those who know the creator behind it. And the command here is to look. It's this old school word that, might, that we don't use outside of like Christian settings like behold. I've never said behold to anything. Uh, where's the Royal Oak Pub? Well, there it is, behold. You know, that'd be very strange. Uh, but that's, this is, it's to be able to see something, but truly see it. More than just like seeing the outside, seeing like, oh, that's the thing there. But to really like know the thing, to see the thing, to really get it. We are called to truly see the Lord, to truly see how great he is, how mighty he is. In our lives, in our circumstance, we're tempted to think that we're mighty, that we're in control. Or maybe this circumstance is mighty, or their circumstance is in control. But God says, you see the night sky? Who created these? Who do you think did this? Who was involved here? Who keeps this world going? Who cares most about this world in a way that only the original artist could? Nothing that happens is beyond God's control. Not a star is missing from its place because he's kept it there. So he's going to keep us. And now all those thin strings that we thought were connected to us being the center of the universe, we get a bigger picture. We don't look down towards ourselves or towards imposter gods. We look up to God in all things. All that's out of control, all that we fear is just going like to fall apart. Our God, who is unlike anything and everything else, has it all in control. But that does mean we have to do something because God being in control doesn't relieve us of action. What it does actually is it gives us a path for the right kinds of actions we ought to take. God being in control doesn't relieve us of action, like we can just, oh, he's in control, so whatever, it doesn't matter anymore. If he's in control, that gives us the path of the right kinds of actions we ought to take. The question here is, how often do we look up? Not like literally, just like to nature and, and see it. How often do you get to ponder the wonder that this world has? Some people have questions like, how is there evil in this world? I think actually the more difficult question is, how could there possibly be any good in this world? The world is full of people who are full of themselves, and yet there's so much glory and wonder to be found. How is that even possible? See, God created this world as a theater to experience his glory, to know his love. That's what the world is here for. So when we see mountains or valleys or beaches or cities teeming with people, let's spend a moment and, and look up, to look at the God who's in control of it all, behind all of it, in all of its glory. When we look up, we aren't looking down to our imposter gods. It kind of relieves us of, of this thing that we kind of like carefully craft and spend our time with. If we look up, we're actually not giving our attention to that thing and now giving our attention to someone else. See, we naturally rely on those imposter gods and, and ourselves and then we're caught in chronic anxiety and fear. We don't live as people who are caught up in wonder. We live as people who are wanting to just get by. 
That means an aspect of looking up is engaging with the God who engages with us. When we listen to his words, that helps us to look up. It saves us from looking down. And when we talk to him in prayer, this also helps us to look up as we bring ourselves to him. In fact, if you aren't having regular times of listening to God through these words that he wants to tell us uh, and talking to him with your words that you want to tell him, you probably shouldn't expect to be very good at like, looking up. You probably shouldn't really expect the, the reality of God breaking in in your life. It's the same in any kind of relationship. When there's someone who's good for you, the more you listen to them, the better you are. Like, the more I'm around Christina, the better human I am. And the more I listen to her, don't tell her this because she's in another room, the more I listen to her, the better human I am. I'm just better for it. There's a reason why I married this wonderful woman. The less I talk to her, the less I'm listening to her, the less I'm involved in her, like, the, I just don't, I, I lag behind on being a good kind of human. And if that's for Christina, surely that, like, apply to God, that's, like, infinitely better. If I don't listen or talk with God, I shouldn't expect to grow any closer. I shouldn't really expect to get any benefit from that relationship. Now, because we're prone to make our imposter gods, we need to be actively looking up to him. I wonder what it would look like if we gave up our own ideas about gods and gave in to the actual God. I wonder what that would look like, even just if we did that just a little bit more in our lives. All of us can. And this story that uh, we've heard today, it says in verse 21, that has been going on from the beginning. It hasn't been told you from the beginning. There is a story that creation and God himself have been telling us, that God is great and mighty. Nobody is like him. That's part of the story of creation. And us as humans, part of that story of creation, shows how needy we are. We don't have it all together that we like to present ourselves as such, of course. And verse 13 has this insanely massive question. Who can fathom, I think on the screen, yeah, uh, yes, who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Who could possibly do that? Now, this reminds me of a similar question, only not directed to God, directed to us in Jeremiah 17. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Who can understand our hearts? We've spent thousands of years trying to understand our own hearts. We kind of can't really do it. The gaping chasm between us and God is unfathomable. We have issues with our circumstances, yes, but really, if we're going to be honest, the biggest problems with our circumstances is us. We bring the biggest problems. And yet, who searches our hearts? Well, the great thing is the rest, the end of that verse, of verse 13 in Jeremiah, it says, I, the Lord, search the heart. There is someone who knows our hearts. God, the Lord does. The same Lord who sets the stars in place, keeps them there, is the same Lord that searches our hearts, the one that are prone to make these imposter gods. He's not scared off by that, by the way. He's, he's there with us. And Jesus came to earth to change our hearts. That deceitful thing that seems so far beyond our understanding, this is what Jesus came to change. That thing that is prone to not look up and wonder, but look down and miss out. What Jesus did on the cross now allows the eyes of our heart to look up instead of any other way. So when we say, we should all look up, you might be like, yeah, I try, and I can't really do it, or I kind of stink at it, I'm not really good at doing that. After Jesus, here's how the word, after Jesus put to death our sin by his death, he rose again. Then he ascended into heaven. And as people were looking up, Jesus and the Father sent the Spirit out, God himself, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God himself who now works in the hearts of all those who follow Jesus. So the way this looking up works isn't first 
by trying harder, though it does require actions and it's not, it's not always easy. That's not the first thing it is. The first thing is relying on the act of uh, the work of God himself to be acting in our own hearts. It's very different than kind of like working up the courage and being like, oh, I got to read the Bible today and going through it. It's very different. Now, that some days it might feel like that. Like it just feels like a struggle because that's what discipline is. Disciplines aren't always fun. People go to the gym, not because they enjoy the feeling at the gym, but because they enjoy the results that come after it. It can often be like that with reading the Bible or speaking to him. But the first thing to do isn't for us to try harder because that's not really good news. Like, oh, great, there's another thing I have to like, you know, worry about, like revolving you know, around and keeping up all the time. That's not really the first thing. The first thing is to realize we can't really try harder by ourselves and to rely on the Holy Spirit to work in us, which will change the way we speak to him. It will change the way uh, we read. We'll be a lot more needier in the way that we interact with each other. And as we relax our hands like this, I mean, if you have to hold the world together, it's like, oh, you know, your hands are going to be like this. As we relax our hands from closed fists to open palms, this is the posture of surrender. This is the posture of neediness. This is the posture, I don't really have anything to bring. I need some help. That, what a great prayer that is. And the only one who can even begin to do any of this through the work is through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. See, Jesus changes our hearts and allows the eyes of our heart to look up, to look up and see how nobody is like God. To not rely on those imposter gods we make, but to look to God in all things, that he is in control. That's really, really, really good news. And one way we exercise this kind of neediness, this posture of surrender, is by taking the Lord's Supper each week. So we're needy, we need the Lord to work, and this is one image of how we do that together as a gospel-formed family on mission. Now, if you haven't given yourself to the Lord yet, uh, please don't join in with us. It's not for you. But if you have, if you follow Jesus, whether you're a member of Redeemer or not, whether you're in person or joining us online, if you have followed Jesus, uh, we welcome you to join in with us. If this is maybe the first time you've done something like this, uh, what a great first step to take with God. Normally we do this over music, but um, we're going to take this all together this morning just to make things up a bit. I'm going to pray and I'll talk about what we'll be doing. So God, we thank you that you've given us yourself. Uh, we thank you you've given us your words. You, who is like you, Lord? Indeed, who is like you? Nobody is like you. And yet, we, who are kind of prone to be missing out on the one that is amazing, uh, that doesn't stop you from seeking us. It doesn't stop you from pursuing us. Even as we are crafting these little imposter gods in the dark corner of our souls, our little workshops here, Lord, you still seek us out. And you persuade us to something better, a better life a better way of living, more meaning, an actual life, a transformation of our hearts, all the things that we actually are, are, are really seeking, all the things we really want to find in this world. You have made it clear and plain. So Lord, I pray you would transform us from the being those small brain creatures so prone to not look up. I pray you would open the eyes of our hearts and therefore be able to look up and see the God of wonder. And as we take the bread and the cup, I pray this would just be another way of, of assuring us of that as the stars are set in place, so we are. Father, we